This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll. Joining me for this special history episode is Naval History Magazine Editor-in-Chief Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Hello, Ward. Hard to believe just a week ago we were podcasting and it was the dead of winter with ice and snow and storms and everything. And now I look out and like spring is here. Spring is here. We'll take it when we can get it. Of course, it's blowing 40 knots out there um, and it, it doesn't exactly feel warm. But as you said, it's a lot better than it was this time last week, but that's the Middle Atlantic in late winter, isn't it? So yes, it is. We'll, we'll take our wins when we can get them. In fact, there's baseball being played at Navy as we speak. They're playing Coppin State right now, even as this is being recorded. So the boys of summer are out. It's great. You're here. About time. Yes. So what's happening in Naval history ecosystem since the last time we spoke anything of note we're uh considering to, to move ahead of pace on the upcoming uh, may june issue um march april issue should be hitting the stands anytime now we're very excited about that we're looking forward to reader feedback on that one uh we talked about that some last time um and of course naval history online which is the growing thing with the magazine has uh continued to expand its variety of content, um, original content, what have you. And what we're going to talk about today is a great example of this burgeoning uh, new venue for naval history, naval history. The digital online. space. This internet fad is catching on. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to ride this wave. Yeah, we are. We're going to ro- We're going to shoot the curl baby. Nonetheless, back to the point at hand, <laughs> this, um, this current article we're going to talk to today with, um, U.S. Navy Captain Brian Tadakin and Lieutenant Kirsten Kroc uh, really blew up on the Internet for us last week on Naval History Online. And we're excited to have them on the podcast today to discuss it. It's a great piece. It, it covers some history that's not covered a lot by the very nature of what it's about. It was just over 66 years ago that one of the Navy's most secretive communities began. And I think that's why there's been such interest in this, because it is a secretive community. It has to be. Uh, Its members went by the code word SOSIS, which means sound surveillance system. And they're on the front line, a new front line in the Cold War. And they had one mission, find submarines. So Captain Tadakin and Lieutenant Kroc, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here. I would ask you to kick things off by uh, maybe talking a little bit about how this was born in the exigencies of the early Cold War and give us a little something about Project Jezebel and a certain Lieutenant Joe Kelly, who's at the beginning of all this. Joe Kelly is the the guy that we consider to be really the father of this program for us. And, uh, you know, the standards that he set and the expectations that he set and the mission that he laid out for the 
workers is really the the same thing that we uh, do today. Uh, you know, this this program was born out of uh, not knowing anything, and so the people in the community had to teach it to themselves and figure it out as we go along. And, and that really is uh, something that we continue to do today. Although there are some Navy schools that you know help us with that mission, uh, we create the edu- the content in those schools. And uh, so that legacy from the early days of uh, Project Jezebel uh, becoming Project Caesar, and then today live live on. We still uh, take care of our own and, and do the mission and teach it to ourselves as we go along because it's a it's a really really unique skill set. So early 1950, Committee on Undersea Warfare and the Assistant CNO gives birth to Project Jezebel, and you had some corporate partners, Bell Telephone and MIT, and that was Project Hartwell. So set the scene here on how this initial phase went. Where were the schoolhouses? What? How was it kept secret? Where were some of the installations? How, how did this work? Yeah, so really, uh, you know, a small group of sailors got together uh, down in uh, a, a tiny little building down in uh, Key West, Florida, which I wish we could still say we have uh, sites there in Key West. That sounds like tough duty. But uh, like all good things, good deeds in the Navy, uh, you know, we got rid of it. We got rid of that one. But, uh, you know, the folks that went down there were, were hand selected. Um, we didn't really know what we were looking for at the time. So we, we picked people who we thought were smart and that we could teach something to and uh, developed a curriculum uh, on our own. And really, the students were as much the teachers as anybody else because they were discovering things, uh, new techniques and procedures as we went along. And, uh, you know, this this low frequency sound that is emitted by just about anything in the ocean, not just submarines, you know, surface ships emit the same sound, whales submit the the same type of sound we really these guys had to go figure this out so they they were overwhelmed at the beginning just listening to all the noises that were out in the ocean and uh, so it took a lot of testing you know we had to get surface ships to go drive near these arrays we had to get you know u.s submarines to go drive near these arrays so that we could get a sense for what are we looking for not just in the u.s inventory, but what are we looking for from, in this case, really the Russians? Uh, and, you know, what's a whale? What's a surface ship? And, and so they really just cr- crafted this out of nothing, uh, these brand new sailors uh, in this community. And, and to this day, you know, in the article, we talk about how we didn't talk, uh, we didn't even let anybody know what skill set these guys had. In, in large measure, some of that is still true today. It's a pretty uh, small group. Uh, it's a little bit more public nowadays, uh, but really the folks who are working here are under pretty strict orders again today to keep keep mum on the subject. Well, that reflects the origins of um, the whole thing, for sure. Um, it's interesting to hear about the early attempts at this and kind of learning this on the fly and uh, building this knowledge base. It, it sounds a little analogous to uh, hearing aids where they got a little better with them, where you put the hearing aid in and you're hearing everything equally loud. You hear a bird chirping out the window and the conversation across the room as loudly as the person you're trying to listen to. And I can see how that would be just a tower of babble of confusion so you can delineate these different sound elements in there. And it sounds like that was a large part of the challenge early on. 
It, it certainly was. It's quite frequent, or quite honestly, uh, you know, when we put new systems in the water today or uh, the enemy puts out a, a new submarine, you know, we kind of have to go through all of that learning curve again, you know, because it's a new signature from from the, the enemy. Uh, the systems become more capable or capable in different ways that, that although we can go model that in a lab, until we actually put a new array in the water, we don't really know what the result is going to be. And so we put these new ones in in the water and, you know, it's uh, great to have a lot of the experienced folks that we have here in the community. Uh, they help us work through what that new array can do and what the uh, bad guys look like on those new sensors. So the initial cadre of, of students slash teachers or learners, um, were these all sonar techs? Was that the community that you you reached into or were there other rates involved? Up until 1970, the students and the staff members were mainly sonar operators and electronic technicians um, for the staffing of SOSIS. And then they replaced, they were replaced by ocean system technicians. And then the OT rating was finally disestablished in 1997. And now we currently are staffed by STGs and STSs. So sonar tech submarines and then uh, obviously the surface equivalent STGs. We also for a while had a little bit of, uh, had a handful of AWs, so aviation worker system operators, um, and they were the ones that were really, all of those ratings were the primary people that staff us today. I definitely think with the return to great power competition that those rates and that focus has got to be ascendant, if not back, um, so you mentioned Key West. There's a cool picture in the article of the Eleuthera Laboratory Test Array, another garden spot. I mean, I'm not kidding. That looks like a place to be stationed there on the beach. Um, so we have these six element arrays uh, in the Bahamas and then other, other places around. It says there were six that grew to nine, providing surveillance off the East Coast. So I guess that's up and down the eastern seaboard, basically, uh, you know, evenly spaced out. Uh, yeah, more or less. You know, some of it depends on uh, certainly back then our cable laying capability it was you know relatively uh, young for us. And so we needed places where we could go that we knew we could get the cable ashore. Uh, but really, the goal was to essentially create a, a fence along the eastern uh, seaboard so that, you know, we had some sort of warning if if the Russians were were coming close to the to the shore, which they sometimes did, uh, they they certainly did. Yeah, there's uh, a a lot of uh, history, some of which we can talk about, some of which we can't. But uh, yeah, lots of um, submarines the Russians did bring over. You know, we had uh, a lot of work during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were able to contribute to to that mission and the understanding that. You know, we were able to give to the U.S. government about the Russians' response during during that whole period. Um, and, and, you know, the, looking for the Russians, uh, that's that's what we're doing again today. You know, we're still out there looking for them. Uh, their Navy is growing. Their, the submarines that they're putting out in, into the ocean are uh, increasingly capable and uh, increasingly quiet uh, and becoming harder and harder Um contacts to find. And so it's, uh, the mission, uh, is no easier today than it was, uh, back on day one, because the bad guys have learned quite a bit 
and uh, they keep making it harder on us. That's what we call job security, I guess. Um, so let's talk <laughs> about some of the early history that we're referring to or we're alluding to. 1963, actually, the SOSA's team was first to realize that the Thresher had sunk. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that's, you know, we'd certainly heard that. You know, the uh, the team that was on watch could hear the uh, the initial sounds of the sinking. They probably, at the time, didn't exactly recognize what it was, right? Because this would have been something they had never heard before. Um, so they did hear, they did hear that we were able to go back, uh, after, you know, we got cued, uh, and said, Hey, let's go look over here. And so all of the operators would have been looking, analyzing the sound. And, and one of the great things that, uh, SOSIS gives us, and we talked about having those sensors all along the East coast is they all detect sound at different times and using those different times, uh, we can, uh, just like GPS does today, you know, your GPS watch tracks the satellites and based on the time that those signals received, it can give you a position. We're able to do that same thing with our SOSIS arrays. So we were able to uh, relatively accurately pinpoint the location uh, and the Navy then was able to go conduct the investigations. And, and also then, you know, the sounds were all very different. So we could listen to the sounds uh, and, and make some educated guesses, bringing in, you know, submarine operators as to what was going on on the ship at that time and help us understand what were the noises that these operators did here, which contributed to the Navy being able to piece together the story of the Thresher. So what was the story of the Thresher? Let's remind the listeners what is uh, what happened there on class, of course. Yeah, so she had uh, some sort of uh, casualty while she was out uh, underway operating uh, that caused her to sink. Uh, what we think today uh, really happened was, we don't know exactly what the initial casualty problem was, but uh, as part of the recovery effort, this submarine would have tried to do an emergency blow where they blow all the ballast off the ship using high-pressure air. Uh, and, and some of the things we were able to help them understand was that maybe that system didn't exactly work uh, as designed. Uh, and based on that, then the, the Navy uh, undertook a very large project to do a redesign of those systems and do some engineering analysis. But without the acoustic intelligence that we were able to provide them, you know, that would have been a lot more of a mystery for the Navy. So basically, so, the emergency blow system did not work, and it sank instead of ascending to the surface. Exactly. Okay. And you mentioned a couple other in, in that same paragraph. We talk about uh, Scorpion later in the decade, and then Soviet K-129. What's the high-level explanation of those, and how did SOSIS uh, contribute to the discovery and the mishap reports? Yeah, really for the Scorpion and the K-129, I don't think we had as good of uh, intel as to what happened on those ships. And we're really just helping cue uh, the Navy as to where to go look for those those casualties. And that's honestly, that's something we still do today. Um, you know, there was uh, the motor vessel El Faro a few years ago down in the Caribbean that sank during a hurricane. And, uh, you know, we were able to monitor that and detect it and provide the 
Coast Guard, you know, a location of the sinking, and they were able to find that on their very first rescue sortie. Uh, so the again, it's just a lot of the same mission that we've done over past. We're we're just trying to refine that and uh, get better at it as we go through. So if I'm your warfare specialty, what schooling do I go through after commissioning? And then there's a cool picture of the impeccable, which is a really cool looking ship. Um, so do I deploy on that? Are there sister ships to the impeccable? What's that look like? So what the current process is, is we uh, fall under submarine learning center for schools. Um, we have a schoolhouse location here in Virginia Beach on Damneck, and then one co-located in Whidbey Island um, there for, you know, our West Coast assets. Um, the Whidbey Island location specifically trains sailors that are going to be going to those surtest platforms that you mentioned. Um, so they'll be getting, you know, specific training there. Um, there's additional training for watch floor type sailors that will not be um, necessarily deploying, but are manning our watch floors, you know, 24-7 um, stateside. Uh, so for those sailors that are going to the operational tour, um, meaning deploying on SIRTAS, they'll complete that training. Uh, then they'll report to an equivalent of a detachment that's, again, co-located at Whidbey Island. Uh, they'll complete a training workup cycle stateside. Um, with their watch team. And then once they're fully trained, certified, um, they will deploy to 7th Fleet and relieve the crew that is currently on the platform out there and basically execute a crew swap similar to, you know, what most submarines go through. And that's kind of the generic process for SIRTAS. You know, the watch floors have a, a little bit of a different process, but, um, same thing as far as schoolhouse and then follow on to the actual watch floor and watch team. So these are USNS ships. So let's remind or school the listener on, is the captain a merchant marine person or is it actually a naval officer? They are merchant marines. They are staffed by merchant marines. And I don't want to misspeak, but I believe a handful of contractors um, that support the team as well. But there are no other than our sailors and occasionally um, an ATFP element uh, for protection, that would be the only military personnel on board. The SIRTAS ship's a, a really interesting uh, unit. So as we said, it, it is an MSC ship, Military Sealift Command ship with an MSC crew. Oftentimes they, they contract uh, most of the crews who operate, you know, drive the ship, conduct the maintenance on the ship. The mill crew that we talked about, those are the people that do the acoustic analysis. And then there's a third group of people uh, who operate and deploy the towed arrays that come off of these uh, SIRTAS ships. And those folks are, uh, you know, some real treasures because some of them have been working inside the community for a long, long time and have been deploying on SIRTAS ships for years and years and years. And they've got some real expertise on those systems and so it, it is a it takes a, a lot of folks to tango on one of those ships to to get everything going uh so that has both its joys and its struggles some days when you're trying to deal with all those organizations again i i direct the listener to go up the article and take a look at that that the picture of the impeccable it's really a cool looking ship are we currently making any more of these or when were when were these ships commissioned and are they up for decommissioning or what, what's the health of this fleet? 
there's five of these ships uh, in service today. And over in about five years, we're going to start decommissioning those ships. And there's a replacement class uh, under design. Uh, we're going to build uh, more of them. They will look very similar. Then you talk about the design of the ship. It, it is designed to be very, very stable, even in very, very high sea states, so that we can keep the towed array that's arrayed behind it. Uh, as stable as possible so that it can listen as, as well as possible. So the new ships that we're designing and, and going to go build, they're going to look very similar. There'll be some differences, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're going to go build more of these. Uh, the demand signal from the, the, the folks out there is ever-growing, and they want more of these ships. They want more of the fixed arrays. So the community as a whole is growing greatly. Yeah, I would think so with, again, the return to great power conflict here. So have we awarded these contracts or is there an RFP out there or what, what's the status of this program of record? Yeah, so they're, uh, they're still in the design phase. The, uh, the Whether it's been, it, it has not been gone out for proposal yet to uh, be built yet, but the uh, final designs are in progress and we're rapidly moving towards that. So the Surtas ships um, arose in the 1980s originally, I believe it says in your article, and the 80s was a time where uh, SOSIS had really expanded as a community. It had thousands of sailors uh, involved at this point. It was really growing. We're at sort of the apex of the Cold War at that point. And one of the interesting things in your piece is to watch the technology evolve from its humble origins to you get to the 80s and it's growing like gangbusters. And as you're pointing out, it continues to grow today. As the adversary gets um, craftier, we have to get smarter. And so the technology advances. But it's remarkable to see how far you've come as a community. When you look at back at those early stations where you've got the row after row of these um, paper uh, spools on the metal um, uh, cylinder and the stylus going across them. And uh, uh, the um, staff would have to walk the beams, as you called it. And I think you still use that term today as sort of a, uh, a nod to your past, even though you no longer physically have that kind of involvement with it. It's like, it's like looking at early Univac computers versus what we have now. Uh, and seeing that uh, technology evolve so quickly by trial and error is... Um, it's a testament to uh, capabilities and it's, it's, it's history in itself, just the evolving technology. There's a lot of that in this. Yeah, I, I think the, the technology is pretty remarkable. Uh, that is one of the reasons or one of the big reasons why we're able to downsize. You know, we certainly downsized post-Cold War, but also the technology just got to the point where uh, I was able to uh, power a cable, a much, much longer cable than I could originally. That's part of why we needed so many stations early on is the technology just, I had to have a pretty short cable to be able to power that cable. Now I can power a cable that's thousands of miles long. Uh, and so I don't need as many shore facilities. Um, I can communicate and send data, you know, around the world. You know, we talked about the Surtas ships, one of the great capabilities about that is certainly there's a, a small military detachment on that ship doing that analysis, but they can send all their data ashore. And I, I have shore-based analysts who could look at that data in real time that's being collected by that Surtas ship. Uh, and so 
I don't need to have as many facilities because I can move large chunks of data around the world and process them in basically anywhere. If I wanted to, I could move uh, to the middle of Kansas and build a uh, facility there, and all, we could do all the acoustic analysis in the in the middle of the, the country. We don't have to be next to the ocean. Towards the end of the article, Captain, you talk about, or you guys talk about, upgrading and replacing the existing underwater cables. Let, let's talk about that system. Yeah, I wish we could really talk about uh, talk about that, but uh, it's a topic I know a lot about and is near to dear to my heart. But uh, I think we can say that we are, uh, as we said earlier, we're growing and we're replacing and bringing advanced capabilities uh, as rapidly as we can. So you you say I'm just reading the article. I'm not trying to <laughs> reveal secret information. Uh, efforts are underway to upgrade and replace the existing underwater cables to bring them up to standards needed to detect quiet modern submarines. That's all very true. Okay. So th- these efforts are underway. So that's good. Your, your Navy is on the case, America. That's all you guys need to know. You know, one thing we didn't, we kind of alluded to, but we really didn't get to talk to is um, certainly the technology is amazing. We've got some amazing ships, um, but the, it's the people that make this uh, community uh, what it is. Uh, you know, there is an alumni association called the Caesar Association, and uh, you can go Google that and, and find that. Um, and, and, you know, that's all people who have been in the community that get together occasionally. Um, but you know, in my headquarters today, I have people who, you know, I have hundreds and hundreds of years of experience in some of the workforce that I have. Uh, it's a pretty compelling mission. And so when people get in, they don't uh, they don't like to leave. It, it's very fulfilling. It's satisfying because you can see in real time, you know, if we detect a, a Russian submarine or a, a Chinese submarine, uh, we can see the fleet responding to that. And, and that's a pretty awesome uh, experience. And I think it's very uh, rewarding for a lot of folks. And so I have people who have been here for decades. In fact, uh, I tried to get them to come today, but we were unable to. There's a, a gentleman named Ed Smock, and uh, he's actually quoted, although not uh, officially in the article, where early on it said, hey, we had nothing. We knew nothing. We had to figure it out on our own. That's Ed Smock. He still works in, in my community. He works for me today. Uh, he has been in this community for uh, every single day of its existence. So working in IUSS for more than 66 years, he's in his mid-80s, still uh, powering away, uh, supporting the mission. It's folks like Ed and some other folks uh, that we have here that really make this community come alive and continue to uh, carry the torch. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, maybe NASA has somebody like that, but I doubt any other agencies or communities have uh, a, a guy like Ed. So, Kirsten, how about you? What drew you to, to the community, and what would be your pitch to a midshipman who's thinking about service selection? Um, well, I am a surface warfare officer, so this is not a traditional tour for us Um But honestly, I am so grateful that I was able to come and serve a tour here because before I got here, I had no idea what this community was. I had never heard of it. Um, When my detailer proposed it, I said, "Okay, like, let's let's do it. And uh, 
I'm going to be very sad the day that I have to transfer on and move on to another community because this one, I know uh, Captain Tadigan mentioned the people, but they really are such an amazing group of people that we have here. Um, both, you know, the active duty side, the civilian side, the contractors, they all, the experience they have, the wealth of knowledge. Um, it's, it's something that once you get here, you can really appreciate because everywhere else in the Navy that I've been, you know, you have the three to five year turnover rate. Um, but here we're able to have that knowledge and keep it in house. And, uh, it's definitely something that I don't think many other communities have that. And, uh, that's something that definitely makes it stand apart from everywhere else. So I would, I would definitely recommend for anyone that has the ability to serve a tour in IUSS to absolutely jump on it as soon as they can um, because it is a very rewarding and fulfilling tour. So the article is 66 Years of Undersea Surveillance. The authors are Captain Brian Tadakin and Lieutenant Kirsten Kroc. Thank you, you two, for giving us a glimpse into the world of undersea surveillance. And thanks what you're doing on a daily basis to keep us safe. You're here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again very soon. Yeah.